thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, focusing on the tabernacle. Did I say Revelation? <laughs> it's, it's been on my mind, actually, lately, with all the events that are taking place today in the world. So if, if, you've, if you've been with us through the study of the book of Revelation, you should have at least an inkling on how to read these events, right? Uh, obviously, all these uh, floods and all the perturbation we're seeing, just as Father said, uh, are covenantal in nature. God is sending a warning, and he'll continue to do so. Um, so, and if, you, if you've been with us through the book of Revelation, most people, when they think of Revelation, they, they, they think of you know, the end of the world, they think of terrible things. But remember that the book of Revelation, halfway through, is about the revelation, that is the coming of the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not a book of doom and gloom. Uh, this is a book of the promise of God being fulfilled, a marvelous thing that is going to happen, uh, obviously through uh, suffering. And in our time, we've reached a point in the civilization of the world where rationalism has so penetrated the minds of folks, this heresy of rationalism, which basically says that I believe only what can be measured and nothing beyond, and I will structure my life around it. This heresy has reached such a point that it is becoming harder and harder for them to hear the Word of God, and have their minds open to the proclamation of the good news. And God, as a good father, at one point will hopefully put an end to this so that they can be saved. Uh, remember, the worst thing can happen for anyone is to go to hell, not to die. So God, as a good father, thinking about our final end, is concerned about all the souls are going to hell. So when you think about abortion, um, don't just think about the babies that are being aborted but also thinks about the people who are involved in this. They're the ones who are going to end up paying the highest price. There are so many souls being lost today because of all of this. And so if God truly wishes to show mercy on us, what does he do? He puts a stop to it, right? That would be the merciful thing to do. The wrathful thing to do will be to maintain the world in in instability and financial security, give us all these wonderful things, and we continue with our abortion. We continue with our immorality. We continue with the life as we know it. And we continue to go to hell. You understand? We always have that sort of reversed view of mercy and wrath. So, uh, that's, I, was, I was listening to the news and they're talking about how the price of uh, uh, 
the price of grain is going up dramatically. It'll continue to do so, and it's fueling all these issues, and there won't be enough water, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The world is doom and gloom for those who have no hope in their hearts. But part of it is God's way of, of saying, stop. If you won't stop, I'll make you stop. Right? Because I'm in control. Surprise. You don't know that yet, but I'm going to show you. So, anyhow. Uh, yes, the book of Exodus. We've been spending time on the tabernacle, and I told you that typically people think of the book of Exodus as being the book of the Ten Commandments. And that's a very Protestant point of view. Very Protestant. Because it's a point of view that stresses the written word, the word. They forget that about 50 chapters throughout Scripture, between what you see in, in Exodus and in Numbers, are on the tabernacle. About two are on the Ten Commandments. The highlight of the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. And the Ten Commandments are connected to it. And I told you the three pillars that govern our lives spiritually. First, morality. Morality. How do we conduct our lives? And in that regard, we have to grow in the virtues. So the four carnal virtues, the three theological virtues, infused in our soul and baptism. The carnal virtues, temperance, justice, prudence, fortitude. Temperance, justice, prudence, fortitude. The three theological virtues, faith, hope, and and charity, faith, hope, and love. I would uh, suggest. I would suggest that when you go home, you find a way to memorize the definition of these virtues. Memorize the definition of these virtues, and then, and then, make a resolution per virtue for each one of them. Make a practical, concrete, measurable resolution. Let's take patience. How do you make a resolution for patience? It won't be, I'm going to be patient this year. This is not a resolution. This is a wish. Why? It's not measurable. You can't measure it, right? It has to be measurable so you know you're making progress. So a good one would be, I will, I will not yell uh, more than three times a day. That's maybe realistic, because you won't be able not to yell all day long. It's measurable. You give yourself a quota, and you can hold yourself accountable. Fortitude. I will... um, What would be a good one for fortitude? I will find something that bugs you. Oh, yeah, here's a good one. Here's a good one. I will pray without failings. 15 minutes a day. Or, I will pray without failing the rosary every day. Measurable, concrete. Hmm? Fortitude. It requires fortitude to do that. Yeah? Justice. Here's a good one. I will not give my opinion as soon as I hear something that bugs me. I will bite my tongue. Or I will take 10 minutes to think about something before I say something. Right? 
measurable, concrete. So find things like that. Now, how many of you have done that? How, how many of you have tried to do that in your life so far? Beginning of the year, we make resolution. Right? How long does it last for those who have tried? A few days. Okay. A few days. Why do you think this is the case? Why is it that overall we don't seem to be able to carry these resolutions forward? Why? Yes? We take them in our own hands and we don't pray and ask for help. Everything the Lord said we will do. Two weeks later, the golden calf. Do you see the connection? Morality, we just talked about it, cannot be separated, cannot be lived out, cannot be achieved, cannot be attained without liturgy. You can't grow in morality without the liturgy. Do you understand? Do you, see the, do you understand the connection? If you really meditate on it, you will understand deep, the deep connection between liturgy and morality. God is saying to us, look, you fundamentally cannot do that stuff. You cannot be moral. You can't. Now, this is very hard for us to believe. This is the biggest problem we have. Yes, we can. No pun intended. We can. That's our answer. We, absolutely we can. We can everything. Right? If you set yourself to it, you'll be able to do it. God is saying, no, you can't. You cannot. Well, first we have to be convinced that we can't. It takes quite some time in doing for us to be convinced that we can't. That's number one. Then God says, okay, now that you understand that you can't, you're going to come and ask me, and I'm going to give it to you. How does he give it to us? How does God give us what we need? Does he do it willingly? Does he say, go to the beach, grab a guitar, sit under the tree, pray to me? Is that what he's saying? Does he leave it up to us? Does God leave it up to us? How do we know God has no intention of leaving, leaving, leaving it up to us? No, no, no. Yes, church, but I mean, how do, we, how do we know? How do we know He does not intend to leave it up to us? How? Practically. Yeah, show me. Show me in Scripture. How does He show us in Scripture that He has absolutely no intention of leaving it up to us? The Ten Commandments is for morality. I'm talking about now obtaining morality through prayers. How, do we, how are we supposed to pray? Does he leave it up to us? No. The tabernacle. Why does he spend so much time telling them exactly how it's going to be done? Couldn't it be easier for God to say, look Moses, listen to your feelings. You have to feel my presence. Hold hands. Sit around the fire. And you will feel me. What does he do? It's a very elaborate ritual where he specifies everything. Now, did Jesus do something similar? Did Jesus leave it up to us? How do we know he didn't? Pardon? Right. This is the, the, the institution, right? Very specific. But there's another case. They came to him and said, how shall we pray? Did Jesus say... Listen to your inner feelings. 
sit down and whatever comes to mind, say it? Is that what he said? All right, what did he say? What, what, what is the first word? Repeat that for me. Our. 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 Notice, our. Why didn't he say, my? He's not as interested in our personal prayers as he's interested in our communal prayer. When he said pray, he didn't mean pray individually. He meant pray. Now, he's not discounting personal prayer because also go in your room, close your door, and your father will have a little... But that is contingent upon this. It isn't one without the other. It is one because of the other. Your personal prayer is fruitful because it's connected to the communal prayer that he instituted in the liturgy. Do you understand? So, you want to grow in morality. You want to grow. In, you have to grow in morality to be a saint. You have to grow in morality to get to heaven. That's a given. It's your duty. You must. Right? In order to do that, you have to recognize you cannot do it. Once you recognize you cannot do it, you have to ask yourself, how can I do it? And the Lord says, I will make you do it through the liturgy. Which is very strange for us because, because we don't see cause to effect. Why is going to Mass, or why going to Mass daily, will make me... Why? How? We don't see it. Right? Because fundamentally, the root cause of our problem is spiritual, and we are blind to it. We don't see it, but He does. So, you have to go to the liturgy. The liturgy feeds your morality. Yes? And then, what is then missing... Friendship with God. That's your prayer. That's your prayer in your room. Spirituality. The three together work in tandem. This is how he's supposed to make it happen. And what is that exactly? Think about it. Liturgy is when the whole fam- family comes together, right? Before God. Spiritu- spirituality is when you personally commune with God on one on one. And morality is your response to God's goodness by showing Him that you truly take His word seriously because you are... Okay, what is another word for morality? Repent. Repentance is morality. Or morality is the sure sign that you're repenting. If you're not growing in morality, you're not repenting. Do you understand that? All right. Let me give you one very concrete example. And I mention this constantly because it's very important. In order to go to heaven, in order to go to heaven, we must have final perseverance. It's called final perseverance. Final perseverance means that all the way until the last moment of our lives, we are exercising those virtues. Hope, faith, charity, and all the other ones. That is final perseverance. Here's the deal. God wishes to give final perseverance to all. Jesus died for that. Now, key on that word. He wishes to. That's His general plan. 
he does not give final perseverance to all. Do you understand that? It is not an automatic thing. He just doesn't give it out automatically. What must happen to obtain final perseverance? You must persevere in prayer. If you do not ask for it daily, if you do not ask for final perseverance daily, you will not get it. Do you understand that? You have to ask it daily. How do we know that? Which prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Wouldn't it be nice if he said, you know, give us this day our bread for the rest of our life. We're done. We're good. That's it. We're set. Give us this day. What, what, do, we, what do you do when you, when, you, when you say give us this day? What are you doing? What is that act? You are praying. You are praying. So it's daily that we must pray. Yeah? So... This whole thing that I just went through explains to you why he spent so much time on the tabernacle, on the liturgy, because it's the means through which the Ten Commandments can become real. Yeah? All right. Now, I want to talk about a couple of things about the, the, the tabernacle in general terms, because they're really important. Let me see. I want to talk to you tonight between chapters 25, 26, and 27, about some important elements that are fascinating. First, the parallelism between the tabernacle and the creation account in Genesis. For you to see that when God instructs Moses in, crea- in constructing the tabernacle, it is a new creation. He is recreating the world. Symbolically in this case, but it is a new creation. The second thing I want to show you is the parallelism between Sinai, the mountain, and the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle is Sinai. The tabernacle is that mountain. And you will see why this is important. When you connect it all into the covenant and particularly into marriage. And then, if we have time, I'd like to talk a little bit about inside the tabernacle and the material used for the tabernacle. So, as I said earlier, God is not delegating responsibility for designing the tabernacle to anybody. It is a pattern that is seen in heaven, and that pattern is described in the book of Revelation, the last book of Scripture, where we see the pattern come down. That pattern is what Moses saw, and that's the pattern he must use in order to build the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting. So, both of the tabernacle and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are connected in a, in a symbiotic, in a, in a fundamental way. They are one aspect, or two aspects of the same reality. We cannot live the Ten Commandments without the tabernacle. And if you try to take one away from the other, you end up with a heresy. You need both. Because this is how God intended for us to live with him. So when you think about the construction of the the whole tabernacle, the way it was described, 
As a general rule of thumb, when you read back into it, you will see, as I said last time, that the choice of the metals is indicative of the greater degree of holiness. The closer you get to the holy place, the more noble the metal is. You end up with precious stones, etc. And God is doing this not because he wants us to um, you know, create expensive churches. He's doing this because he needs to teach us about the realities of heaven in two ways. Number one, that heaven is beautiful, that heaven is desirable, that heaven will satisfy all our desires and the desires of our hearts. So there is, heaven is attractive. And the only way you can do that is by using things that attract us. Yeah? So therefore, God, speaking our language, makes the tabernacle, the inside of the tabernacle, correspond to what we value in terms of material possessions. So it has an educational purpose. The second, it also has a... um, an aspect where he's trying to teach us about his holiness, how holy he is, by way of the um, by by creating something look like a treasure, effectively, right? So we have uh, almost a disordered respect for money. Okay, we 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 see a pile of money, we're gripped by a sense of awe. Well, he's trying to teach us through this mechanism of things that we value how holy this is because we will tend to respect gold and precious stones and metals. We, use them, we, we will handle them with the utmost care because we consider them to be very valuable. And through that, God is trying to teach us the truth about who he is and who we are. And as I mentioned to you last time, our architecture is prayer in stone, and the churches, the structure, the architecture of the church would, would help us be predisposed to these truths if it is guided by these same principles. When the architecture tends to be guided by principles of uh, communality, where we focus on ourselves, more so than we focus on that hierarchical order from earth to heaven, then the church loses its architectural meaning, and we as as the faithful will get confused and are confused uh, because now more and more the church is looked upon as a um, theater, as a play where there's a show. Because this is the prevalent uh, model we have when we sit together, whether it's a game or a show. We do more of these than we do the church, and hence it has now conditioned us, and you can see that by the way people react at the end of the Mass. Because as soon as the Mass ends... Most people get up and start talking, greeting each other and just talking as if it's a normal place. They have no concept of sanctity. There's no concept of holiness. The way they sit, they, cr- they cross their legs as if they're comfortable sitting with a peer. There is no notion, oh, I'm sitting before God. I should take off my sandals, which is showing forth humility. The clothing standard we use, again, is lacking. Flip-flops, jeans, whatever. Right? No notion that I am entering a holy place. And again, the architecture, unfortunately these days, is not helping us. Be it as it may, 
just generally speaking, this is what you will see across the entire description of the tabernacle as is given uh, by God to Moses. Now, in, the, in, this, um, in this particular uh, text, you will see that there are actually very strong parallelism between, um, between Genesis and the construction of the tabernacle. So, on the one hand... In Genesis 131, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the end of the, the, the act of creation. Here, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, and the Lord had commanded. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Exodus thirty nine forty three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Genesis 2, 1. Thus all the works of the tabernacle of the, of the tent, meaning, was finished. Exodus 39:32 God finished his work which he had done Genesis 2:2 2, 2. So Moses finished the work Exodus 40:33 So God blessed the seventh day Genesis 2:3 and Moses blessed them Exodus 39:43 So the entire text of creation has these key words sprinkled through it to indicate the progress and the completion and so it is also in Exodus, where as the, tab- as the tabernacle is being built, you see these specific phrases, catchphrases coming through to indicate completion. It is, in a fundamental sense, a work of creation or recreation, because um, fundamentally what God is doing, notice what he does in his covenants. First with Adam and Eve, there is an act of creation that leads to Adam and Eve. Then the covenant is broken. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. We see the Canaan civilization rise, and then God puts an end to it through flood, and then there is an act of creation or recreation through Noah. We start all over again. right? And then you see that in this specific instance, God has destroyed Egypt, and now on Sinai, he's doing a new thing. Right? It's an act of creation, but this time it is liturgical. It isn't physical. This time, it is the royal way by which he wishes to lead people to sanctity. With one caveat, the liturgy as it existed back then did not have in it what was required to allow people to grow in holiness. That ingredient, grace, was missing. What was given was the form. It was given so that Israel as a whole, as a nation, worships God the right way, but it was, there was no grace that God would impart through this particular liturgy for personal sanctification. This will have to wait the coming of Christ. And Christ would then renew the liturgy and will infuse it with his own life so that it becomes life-bearing, life-giving. Right? So, key on this because effectively, if you think about a wedding, a wedding is always a new creation. A wedding is an act of new creation. In fact, it's a literally, literally new creation because the hope is that babies will come forth from weddings. So it is a new creation. Likewise, here, it's a wedding. God says, I will take you as my own to Israel. And Israel is often portrayed as the bride 
and God as the bridegroom. It's a, it's a, a covenantal union like a marriage. And in fact, the, um, the uh, ancient, the, the, the church fathers, the early Christians, called the liturgy, the name for the mass, the liturgy, was the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And that's why in the Gospel of St. John, on the seventh day, when you follow through, St. John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was God, and God was with, right, in the beginning. So he goes back to Genesis. And then after this very high lofty text, he says the next day. Then he says the next day. Three days. And then he says, on the fourth day. On the fourth day from the third, that's the seventh. Cana, the wedding. Jesus is there, Mary is there. And the... The couple is anonymous. The man and the woman are not mentioned, but Jesus and Mary are mentioned, which the church has always understood to be the mystical marriage between Jesus and Mary. The union, as we understand it today, between the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary. Right. So that notion, that concept of marriage, is really central to understanding the Covenant, and when I tell you there is morality, there is spirituality, and there is liturgy, this is the way a covenant will work. The three elements together make the covenant works. As part of the covenant, you have morality, you have liturgy, and you have spirituality. The three works. Notice, by the way, you know that the church requires us to come to Mass every Sunday. Right? It's a duty. The duty... The virtue of piety. Piety is the duty to give glory to God. At the same time, though, the church, in a, in a fundamental sense, requires us to live the commandments. We ought to be in a state of grace. You, you, do you see the correspondence? It isn't just a liturgical requirement. There is a moral requirement that goes hand in hand. You do this and you do that. You do them together. That's how it works. And there is the duty of prayer. So all three together will allow us to live a Christian life. We need all three together to live a Christian life. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is this parallelism between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle, which is very strong. As I said earlier, um, Mount Sinai was divided into three portions. The bottom, the base of the mountain where all the people stood. Then the midsection of the mountain is where, the, where Aaron and the 70 elders went and, um, and uh, essentially ate with the Lord. And then the top of the mountain was forbidden to all except Moses, who was able to go there. Likewise, in a tabernacle, you have the three sections. You have the outer court where people can enter when they're bringing their sacrifices. Then there is the second part of the tabernacle, the holy, where only the priests could go. And then there's the holy of holy in which the high priest could enter once a year. Why do you suppose there is this sort of correspondence between the two? What is God trying to tell the Israelites? He's trying to tell them this. I have invited you to come up to my holy mountain. I have invited you to come up to my holy mountain. A holy mountain represents what? It's a physical structure 
It's a natural architecture representing what? Our ascent to heaven. Right? Where the top of the mountain is heaven and we have a journey to make. And it's upward. That's what it represents. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus used a very odd image when he said, if you have faith the size of a grain of sand and you said to this mountain, right? He didn't say, and you said to a mountain, to this mountain, right? Get up and throw yourself in a the, in the, in the, in the sea, it will do so. And we think it's just a question of any mountain. You know, Mount Everest, Mount, you know, the Alps, whatever. But that's not what he had in mind. He was pointing at what mountain? Mounts? No, 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 no. Mount, Mount Zion. Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's the mountain he was pointing at. This mountain. There's only one mountain that the Psalms speak of. The mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion. This mountain. What's so special about it? It's holy. And what's the sea? What is the sea representing? The Gentiles. So if you have the faith of a grain of sand, you can take the mountain of the Lord and bring it to the Gentiles. That's what, that's what he has in mind. You can convert others by your faith. So therefore, the mountain, notice, the mountain is Mount Zion, the abode of the Lord. The tabernacle looks like this mountain. So what is God trying to tell them to this tabernacle? The, the tabernacle is a replica. It's a portable replica of the mountain. When you go to the tabernacle, you are going to the mountain of the Lord. God is saying to them, I wish to be with you, and I want you to be with me on my mountain. Why? Because it is a marital covenant. One home, one family, one place. It is a holy covenant. Hence, you shall live on the mountain of the Lord. But because you cannot physically live on the mountain of the Lord, I'll create a vehicle by which you can achieve the same thing. Or at least, a vehicle by which you can think about the same thing. So likewise, the church... What is the church? This church. Not, I'm talking about the Catholic, but this, this church we're in right now. What is this church? Yeah, see, it's reversed. This church is not the mountain. The mountain is a replica of this church. This is more real than the mountain where God appeared. Where God appeared, where Moses saw God, that was less real than this church we're in right now. Do you understand that? If you have in mind a wish to see what was up that mountain to be with Moses and to see the lightning and the thunder and how God appeared, etc., etc., you're missing the point. Because Moses would look at you and would call you fool. Because he would wish to have what you have. Which is by far greater, by far more powerful than anything he ever had through his entire life. No matter how great and grandiose and amazing and holy the appearance of the Lord was on the mountain, it was not substantial, was it? it? He could see the Lord. Could he touch the Lord? Could he eat the Lord? Do you understand? I mean, this is the reality 
of what was being indicated in the Old Testament. This is it. We have it. And we're more excited about bingo than we are about going to the church. Now, I'm not saying this to make you or I feel bad. I'm saying this to indicate one more time the reality that apart from him, we can't do it. Even knowing all of this thing, even, even though you might understand what I'm saying right now, intellectually, you know full well that between this intellectual comprehension and your heart, there's about three miles of cement, which is your heart, or the outer layer of your heart. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating. Let's make that 2.5 miles of cement. But that's the truth. That's the fundamental truth. Our heart is hard. It's hard. And what he wants from us is just to admit it is hard and we can't do anything about it. If we can just admit that, if we can just admit that, then he can begin to do what he needs to do. Yeah? Because when we admit that, and make, understand what I'm saying. I don't mean to say going to Jesus and saying, look, Jesus, I have a hard heart. Please do something about it. And then there's this, you know, there's this footprint note. Okay? Anything but the cross. I want you to do something about it, but please keep me comfortable. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel any pain. Do what you have to do. But I'm checking out. See you in Florida. So again, what I'm saying, when we realize truly what is going on, I mean, you can see now the working of the Holy Spirit in us to make us realize, yeah, my heart is this heart, number one. Number two, make us realize how Jesus feels about it. So we become Jesus-centric, not, or God-centric, not us-centric. That he paid the price and still my heart is hard. That's what will break our heart. Is when we realize the price he paid, it'll break our heart. And we're willing then to suffer for him and with him. Then we're able to really carry our cross joyfully. This is how the saints do it. There is no other way. This is what God had in mind for us when he gave them the tabernacle. This is what he had in mind for us when he gave them the tabernacle. So again, the, the parallel between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. First, the Israel's experience of God at Sinai in chapters 19 through 24 is an archetype of the tabernacle. The peak of Mount Sinai is the same thing as the Holy of Holies. Only Moses is in the former. Only Aaron may enter the latter. The very site of Sinai's summit is punishable by death. Entering the Holy of Holies is punishable by death. Why do you think God made it so that it's punishable by death? Why is it punishable by death? So let me, let, let me clarify that for you for a second here, just so we can understand each other, all right? Because when I say punishable by death, right, it's this kind of vague thing over there. A 12-year-old kid enters the Holy of Holies. What happens to him? He's dead. Now, is punishment by death resonating? Why? Why is it punishable by death? True, true. No one may see the, the face of the Lord and lives. But why? 
See, I can ask you the next question. Not that I'm trying to be difficult, but why is it that in order to see God, you have to go by, through death? But why by death? Why can we, I mean, why couldn't he be saying something else? Like, I don't know. I'll, uh, if, if you do this, I'll sprout a third leg on you or something. I mean, why death? How many of you feel this is just? And hear my word. I use that on purpose. Feel. No, no. It's physical death. It's your dead. Dead, dead. So how many of you feel it's just? So why do you think we feel it is not just? Why do we have the sense that God is being unjust? Why? Because we think the punishment does not fit the crime. The crime right? The punishment does not fit the crime. Yeah? Okay, let me put it to you this way. Uh, there is a hospital ward where everyone there, everyone there is susceptible to any kind of microbe. Anything. Right? And everybody's told, don't enter because these people there, there's like 30 or 40 people sitting there. If you do that, they'll die. And this kid gets in, and he knows what he's doing. He knows he's not supposed to be there. He gets in, and he sneezes. Now, how do you feel about that? And everybody's dead. And they all die horribly because of what he did. Now, would you feel, would you feel that punishment by death would be a little bit more appropriate in this case than entering the Holy of Holies? I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just trying to bring to your attention our sets of values, how very much we have not understood God's holiness. Not, not a criticism. This is just who, this is our problem. We don't understand how holy God is. We don't understand holiness. We have an inkling. For instance, think of our you know, blessed mother. We say she's holy, but we don't know what that means. She's, you know, we all confess she was conceived of original sin. We don't really know what that means. Do you? Do you really know what that means? The way you would know what a burger tastes like? Do you have the same understanding for these? Other than, no, we don't. We don't. Yeah? Okay. That's our problem. Now, I'm not trying to solve it for you. I can't. But what I can do is recommend that you truly meditate on that. That's point of prayer. That is the point of prayer. God, show me myself as I am before your eyes. Show me what holiness means. Help me to understand who you are. If we were to do that, then God, through the Holy, the Holy Spirit, God will reveal to us the meaning of this text and why, in fact, it was not unjust on God's part, to command that anyone who enters the Holy of Holies be put to death. In fact, in Jerusalem, when the, 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 the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he could enter it only on that day, and only on that day, where he would say the name of God and get out quickly, they would tie a rope around him. Because if God were to kill him, they wouldn't have to get in to get him out. They would just pull him out with a rope. They had an understanding of God's holiness 
which in many ways we have lost. We have lost our understanding of the holiness of God. Which is what I was trying to say last time when I told you that Jesus never used the word friend in the way we use it today. He did use it indeed when he said, I don't call you servants, I call you friend, but don't forget who I am. That was always implied. Whereas we tend to forget who he is. And when we do that, we cannot worship God in truth and in spirit. When Jesus becomes this little godly thing next to me, then I've lost it. You understand what I'm saying to you? And then much of scripture becomes obscure to my mind. How could God be so cruel? How could God be so unjust? And we think, oh, but that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of the New Testament. And we get into all these sorts of heretical thinking. Never mind that we learned 70% of everything we know about hell from Jesus, not from the Old Testament. Jesus spoke more about hell than everything we know about hell in the Old Testament. So, our minds are conditioned by what we live and what we experience. If you were to focus a little bit more on your, in your own reflections on the liturgy, why is it structured the way it is? Why do we have what we have? What are we doing? Why is it done? Then that would be most pleasing to God because truly you're trying to understand His language of love. And that becomes a source of great growth in your spiritual life just by trying to understand how the liturgy works. Unfortunately, these days it's not explained. You know, we, we don't, in most of our parishes, there are no formal classes offered where these things are taught, where we truly form the population, the, the, the Catholic people, in understanding what we're doing here. We're busy with a bunch of other things, but the fundamentals are not being taught. And even though they were to be offered, chances are most people don't even show up. They have more important things to do. We have more important things to do. Bingo. All right. The tabernacle perpetuates Mount Sinai. As I said, they can now take Mount Sinai with them as the physical sign of the covenant between God and his people. The Ten Commandments are not the physical sign of the covenant. The tabernacle is. The tabernacle intensifies Mount Sinai. At the peak of Mount Sinai, Moses entered the cloud, but when the same divine glory enshrouded the tabernacle in chapter 40, when it came down on the tabernacle, not even Moses could stay in the presence of God. He had to get out. Not even Moses could stay when the presence of God, when the Holy Spirit came down on the tabernacle to sanctify it. He had to get out. Yeah? Which is, by the way, a good point of meditation on St. Joseph. Because in the case of Our Lady, it wasn't the Holy Spirit who came down to sanctify the outer objects. It was God made flesh in her. And Joseph was not only in her presence, but he had to be the head of that family. Now think about that. Think about what that meant for him to be the head of the family where his wife is greater than he, and his son is greater than both of them. And as Chesterton said so beautifully, with the Holy Family, God reversed the natural order. In the natural order, it is the father, then the mother, then the kids. With the Holy Family, it is the kid, the mother, and then the father. 
So that's what the tabernacle does. It intensifies Mount Sinai. The tabernacle completes Mount Sinai. Sinai is a marriage, the start of a new relationship. Now they must live together. The marriage has been consummated on Mount Sinai. Now they have to live together. The tabernacle is that life together. Your soul, your soul, is prepared to be united with Jesus. It's called the union of love of the soul with Jesus. This is what heaven is. When you are fully united to God, to the Trinity, and you have been divinized, your nature changes from human to divine, without ceasing to be what it is, human. That's the supernatural life, when you are divinized. That's our destiny. But it starts here on earth, sacramentally. That union starts here on earth. And St. Paul tells us, pray always. What he meant wasn't mutter words all the time. He meant be united to God always, because prayer unites you to God. Yeah? The tabernacle was meant to be a symbol of that. God is with us. Emmanuel. God is, what does God is with us mean? This is, a, this is marital uh, language. It doesn't mean God is with us as in uh, um, militarily we have an ally here. Who's... It means a deep union between us and God. That's what it means. So the tabernacle was meant to be that symbolically for Israel. And the last thing I'll say about the tabernacle from that standpoint is that it extends Mount Sinai. They can't take a mountain with them. They can, t- they can take the tabernacle with them. So, again, the tabernacle perpetuates Mount Sinai. The tabernacle intensifies Mount Sinai. The tabernacle completes Mount Sinai. And the tabernacle extends Mount Sinai. In a tabernacle, we said, there is inside the holy place, there is the the, the altar where bread and wine is offered. Why do you think God required that bread and wine be offered on that, on that altar? Why? Because in a fundamental sense, in a fundamental sense, it is an incomplete word of love. It is us saying to God, we love you, and God not saying back to us, and I love you more. Because what do we do on the, in our churches? What do we offer? We offer bread and wine, don't we? We bring this, right? This is our part. It is so in the tabernacle. It is our part. They bring the bread and the wine. But their offer is not received. Do you see that? It is not taken up to the altar of heaven and turned into the bread of life and comes back down to nourishes us. God tells them, I want you to offer this so that they go, but hold on a second. Why are we doing this? What's the point? This offering inside is unlike the offering than outside. Outside, when you offer a cow or a calf or a, a, a sheep or, or, or lamb, you get to eat from it. You partake from it. It's a natural offering. You see that? That's the outer court. That's where the altar of sacrifice is. It's outside the court. Outside the holy. It's a natural offering which is accepted by God and, part, and then the people partake of it. But the holy offering, 
is not yet accepted. Because no one is found worthy of presenting this offering, a holy offering, until the coming of Christ. Inside, you have, so remember, now notice how Jesus is liturgical in his words. One of the I am, I am the what? I am the bread of life. Do you know what he's thinking about? That's the bread he's thinking about. Jesus didn't use that because it's cute. He used it because it's liturgical. I am the bread. Hmm? My flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. John chapter 6. What is he thinking of? The offering outside. Right? Yeah? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What is in the holy? A candelabrum. A seven-branch candelabrum, which is supposed to be lit with olive oil, pressed and pure. Why olive oil? Because olive is the only fruit which, when is mature, is bitter. And then in order to get the olive oil, you must crush it and you must purify it. Yeah? Where did Jesus go through his agony? Yeah. You think it was a coincidence? That's why it was... the. That's why they mentioned it. Then what happened when he was there? He sweated blood. And then he was crushed. Yeah? I am the light of the world. That, that candle is Christ. It's a symbol of Jesus. The bread is a symbol. You see that? Okay. Notice his words. I am the bread of life. My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. I am the light of the world. John, St. John calls Jesus what? The Word of God. What's in that holy place? The tablet of the law. The Word of God. Yeah, I am the truth. Do you see how every, almost every utterance of our Lord is pointing back to the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle is a symbol, a representation of Christ. Yeah? God is with us. That's the name of Jesus. That was the name of the tabernacle. God is with us. You get it? So, if you were to say, the only thing that is important is the Ten Commandments, you're basically saying, what is really important is the Bible, not Jesus. See how outlandish this idea is? Weird. But we fall in it because, you know, we have this kind of a, you know, telegraphic understanding of Scripture. So, I told you about the fact that the tabernacle is also a prefigurement of the heavenly tent, which is the church. And we've gone through all the readings about the church and the glory of the church and how we ought to judge angels. We've done all of that last time. All right. In the outer court, you have a number of elements which are all geared towards the animal sacrifice. And if you notice when you read it, you will see that all the material they ought to use is either wood or bronze. Earthly material, not noble. Right? The only thing that is noble is the silver at the base of the whole framework. But it's silver, not gold. 
And it's God's way of indicating the difference between the natural covenant and the supernatural covenant that is to come. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it's just something to let you know that um, that's how you sort of understand the composition of the material. There would be a lot more we could say about the meaning of every one of those. If you're interested, there's a book called How, How Christ Celebrated the First Mass, and I recommend it with a, um, with a word of caution because it's a, it's a book written in the 19th century, and um, un- unfortunately, I, I had a sense. I got, I got a little annoyed by the constant repetition you find in the book, the constant repetition about how the Jews rejected Jesus. It is constant throughout the book, and it's too much. You almost wonder if the author didn't have a little bit of an anti-Semitic bent or something. So that's kind of annoying, and that's an unfortunate, because the book is, is choked full of amazing information about the, the symbolic meaning of every single element that you find in the tabernacle and how all of it points to the Lord. My intent in these studies is to help you understand holistically the role of the tabernacle in relation to the book of Exodus, I mean, in relation to the, um, the Ten Commandments and in relation to prayer. Now, next week, we'll focus a little bit more on the clothing of the high priest because I haven't talked about that. And then we'll uh, get to the closure of the uh, study on the tabernacle, cover up more details, and then the, the, lecture, the, the next lecture will essentially bring the book of Exodus to the close, and then we'll get into uh, the book of Numbers. So uh, I think what we'll do now is we'll finish with a word of prayer, and then we can take some questions right after. Yes. Generally speaking, the direction is east to west, yes. Most churches these days are not structured this way for a variety of reasons, but that would be the, the preferred way to structure it, if, if at all possible, yes. Yes. No, there is no Jewish temple today. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So do they have today? They only go to the synagogues. But there is no sacrifice being offered. And it makes sense because the New Testament, the new sacrifice supplants the old. And God would not have both. That's why. Yeah. Since 70 AD, there hasn't been a, a, a Jewish sacrifice offered, uh, sacrifice offered. Yes. Because the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is when he presents the atonement on behalf of the entire people. And that's the only day where he can actually enter the, the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of the Lord. That's as commanded by the Lord. Only on that day may you enter and pronounce the name of the Lord. As a, uh, because essentially, this is the liturgy of atonement for the entire people. Yeah, that's why. Yes. Uh, how did Moses remember all these details? Yes, Moses would have remembered them. St. Teresa of Avila teaches that if the Lord were to speak something to you, not your guardian angel, if the Lord were to speak directly to you, what he says to you will be marked indelibly in your memory. It'll never go away. That's the power of the Lord. Yes. Yes, it is. But he didn't just told, told him. He, he showed him also. Right? He showed him. Yeah. Yes. The daily prayer is when we pray to persevere, God will grant this prayer. No, no, not, not just the daily. That's a good question. Is, is by daily prayer, do I mean necessarily coming to Mass every day? No. It's just to pray to actually pray in our spiritual life for perseverance. And we can do that in, in numerous ways. So if you're saying the rosary, you're praying for final perseverance because we ask Our Lady to pray for us now and at the hour of our death. That means we're praying for final perseverance. Yeah? Good question. 
Yes, it does. But all I'm trying to say, it can also mean the daily communion, but all I'm trying to say does not necessarily mean only... I'm not saying in order to obtain final perseverance, you must come to Mass every day. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you must pray every day. Yeah? It's out of love. But there are some who would love to go to Mass every day and are unable to do so. Right? Yeah. And also... Out of necessity, as we grow up in age, our heart hardens. Because we get older, things get harder, we have our issues, we become self-centered, we're almost reversing to babies. So going to Mass every day helps us stay focused. So it becomes more of a necessity as we also grow older. Yeah. Yes. So the question is, in the book of Samuel, when, when uh, David is bringing the tabernacle up to Jerusalem, he puts the, not the tabernacle, my bad, the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He's bringing that up to Jerusalem. He puts it on, the, on, an, on an ox to carry it. And the ox is not killed. ox keeps on going, doing what it's doing. And you know, an ox has wide shoulders, so it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the, the Ark is unstable. So at one point, the ark is about to fall. So one of the Levites walking by the side of the, of the, uh, of the ark um, supports it to make sure it doesn't fall. And he's instantly killed on the spot. So the point that is being made is, I gave an example of the kid who entered and knowing what he was doing. And the point was, well, this guy didn't know. I was trying to make it a little easier on you. Even if the boy didn't know, he would be dead anyhow. So it is the same thing. In both instances, whether if you enter the Holy of Holies or you touch the ark, you're dead. Fundamentally, God is trying to teach them about objective sin. You know, there's something called objective sin and subjective sin. Subjective here does not mean, well, it depends on how I feel about it. Objective and subjective have something to do with reality. So, objectively, objectively, as an object, this room exists. And whether I want to believe in it or not, makes no difference. It exists. Subjectively, I may have a particular experience about this room. It's the way I apprehend the room. It's my way of living in the room. That's the subjective experience. Yeah? Objectively, when you touch the ark, or when you enter the Holy of Holies, you're dead. Because what you are not understanding is that we, as sinful men, without grace, cannot be in the presence of God. We just can't. We can't. You understand? So, pardon? Unless you're the high priest, and only on Yom Kippur, and only for a very brief amount of time. I mean, it was, a, it was a dangerous mission to enter the Holy of Holies. They didn't, I mean, the rite of purification is extensive through the day. I mean, seven baths before and prayers and seven more baths and, and on and on it went. It was a, a trying thing to be able to enter the Holy of Holies. It was not easy. Okay? So that's why. It was a theophany. First of all, yes, you're right. And secondly, remember, this was before the golden calf. The golden calf is a, is a communal sin 
that is to Israel what original sin is to Adam. In the golden calf, Israel as a nation broke all Ten Commandments and showed itself to be unworthy to be in the presence of the Lord. Yeah? Yes. Providence? Providence is fundamentally the workings of the Holy Spirit in the world. That's providence. No, 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 no. Providence is the working of the Holy Spirit in the world. In this world we live in, the world is governed by the Holy Spirit. And we call it providence. No, you see, it's not about community or individual. You're, you're putting the focus on the object. We are the object of providence. The subject, the one who makes providence possible, is the Holy Spirit. So whether it's for one or many, it is the same providence. Am I answering your question? You sure? Well, see, again, providence is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in the world. And that work we call providence. Whether people are aware of it or not, whether they realize it or not, it is still providence. Providence does not depend on me recognizing it. Correct. That's providence. Now, you as a recipient of providence, you, you recognize it through fruits, precisely. And there are something we call the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Right? Prayer for the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. There you go. I think there was a reason why you're asking this question. Talking about providence. Okay, so, this is great. So, wisdom, understanding, truth, So, I'm sorry, wisdom, understanding, counsel, piety, knowledge, fear of the Lord. It would have been nice if they listed those instead of just doing it as a prayer. Anyhow, this is great. I'll keep one and take one. Great. So, these are the prayer for the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this essentially shows in your life as the... As we said, you, you, so for instance, Saint, the question to St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, how do I know that my prayer life is effective? How do I know? And then we'll tell her things. People will come to them and we'll say, well, you know, my prayer is dry. I feel nothing. My mind is wandering. Uh, I sit to pray and I can't even say one whole, our Father without being all over the place. I don't think I'm praying right. And... St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross would always repeat the same exact thing. They would refer back to the scriptures and say, by their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. Do you want to know if your prayer is effective? Don't observe or rate or grade the quality of your prayer. This is not fresh air. Okay? Don't worry how you feel when you're trying to pray. You might, be, uh, you might be assailed by horrible images. You might be under terrible temptations. You may have images and thoughts that come and hit you that you never thought would come at you. On the other hand, you may be dry as a bone in the desert. Can't say prayer. Can't lift your mind to God. Can't even think about anything. You might be like a bunch of bumblebees flowing all over the place. Thinking about your day tomorrow, your meetings, uh, wondering how you're going to do this, are you going to do that. Uh, thinking maybe I should call this person. Your mind is all over the place. Ping-ponging here and there and everywhere. 
And so you might be sitting in prayer. You went through all these. You might go through all of them. And so you think, what a wasted time. Half an hour later, I've wasted my time. That's what the devil wants you to think. That's not how you measure your prayer. You measure your prayer by how you live your life. Morality. How you're growing in the virtues. Conversely, you can also measure it by how you're not growing in vice. You may not grow in virtue, but if you're not growing in vice, hey, give glory to God. All right? Give glory to God because it's not easy to not grow in vice. Yes. I just said it. Providence is the working of the Holy Spirit in the world. It's the way the Holy Spirit guides everything to God's glory. That's what providence is. It's effectively the principle that says there is no coincidence. There is no luck. So please, don't wish anybody luck. You're cursing them. When you say good luck, you're basically denying providence. Right? And you're leaving people up to the wiles of the evil one. So just don't do that. Providence says there is no coincidence. That means if you believe in providence, it worked something like this. You're about to go to bed with a really good book. Right? And this annoying friend calls and wants to come and visit. <laughs> Not a best friend. Somebody who comes and... He or she talks about herself all the time, doesn't even listen to you. All you have to do is sit and go, mm, 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 for an hour and a half. And then she goes, and you're left frazzled and frustrated. That's when you go, is that what you want? Are you coming under the guise of this person to visit me tonight? Then you believe in providence. You're trying to catch your train. And there's this guy driving in front of you so slowly that you actually get to the train station and you all go down and right as you are to take the train, it leaves right in front of your eyes. If you stopped and said, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? You believe in providence. That's what I mean. That's what providence is. You understand? No. I don't think there is. Providence as such is not used in Scripture. It's teaching the church. Ah. Anaya, probably. Anaya would be the closest. But it's not right on. But anyhow, uh, I'm not a linguist, so I'll defer that to Father. Anyhow, that's the providence is the working of the Holy Spirit. You're never alone. That's another way of saying providence. You're never alone. The presence of God and angel, providence. You're never alone. You're never alone. Providence. It's a distinctly Catholic concept. The working of the Holy Spirit throughout the world is without necessarily showing itself, without miracles or big signs, or it's just God is there with us. God is with us. Providence. That's what it is. Yes. Everything has a purpose. Absolutely. Not only has a purpose, has a good purpose. Right? Everything, everything works. Uh, everything. So that's what providence is. No matter what, you'll get home. Providence. It's just a source of hope. It's a source of all the virtues, the Holy Spirit. right? So, which brings me, I suppose, to the point that I should have made from the beginning, and maybe that's why we're doing this. Most of us understand that we have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes? We really don't know what that means. We think personal relationship means I have to have a cell phone, 
and I have to have his address and a picture of him and know where he is. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ means the Mass. You understand? That's personal relationship. That is, you can't go more personal than that than by eating him. Yeah? Okay. Most of us will kind of kind of understand we should have also a personal relationship with God the Father. Right? After the Father is, you know, you have to get good. But most of us don't tend to think we should have a personal, a very personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And pray to Him, glorify Him, adore Him, thank Him. Right? It's a Trinitarian relationship, and that's precisely why we're doing this, because we absolutely have to have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because without that personal relationship, we don't have a Trinity. Our, our relationship to God is a Trinitarian one. As, as blessed, soon to be blessed, John Paul II said, in the final analysis, God in his deepest mystery, in the final analysis, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude but a family of love. Okay? So, the Holy Spirit. Last question. That's a very good question. The question is, when that Levite held the tabernacle, he, he, he died, we know that, can we then conclude by implication that he went to hell? Um, and the reason why I think it's a very interesting question, because now I just realized one thing, which is what I told you earlier, but now it came into, it's a very good example. In the Old Testament, most of the time, God will say, if this happens, this person will be stoned, or this person will die, right? Jesus, on the other hand, I'm not answering your question, just give me a minute, but I want to just make that point. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't say, this person will, be, will die. He says, this person will be thrown out, where there is gnashing and weeping of teeth. This person will be like the the vine, that is, the, the branches are separated, which are good for eternal fire. Gehenna. Our teachings on hell, these teachings in the Old Testament do, do not necessarily say anything about hell. They only say something about physical death. But the teachings of Jesus are not about physical death. They're about going to hell. Back to your question. I don't, at this point, I have to look to see what St. Thomas says. But my sense suggests that at this point, we cannot say either way. Having said that, having said that, the fact that grace, the grace of God was closed, and the fact that the limbo was the limbo of the just, and the fact that this man broke the covenant, he can be hardly counted as a just. So if I have to err, I would err on the side of hell, in a specific case. But I can't say with certainty. And this may be purely speculative because I don't think the text allows us to imply one way or the other what happens. But it is a, it is a breaking of the covenant. And by the way, the, um, it is true that ignorance saves, but do realize one thing. One of the duty of a Catholic is to know what the church teaches. You have to know what the church teaches. And that is inexcusable. Some people say, but I didn't know that I have to know what the church teaches. Right? So we can say to God, but Lord, I didn't know I had to know. And the Lord would say, did you work somewhere? How many of you are in the workplace? Okay. Are you required to know what you're supposed to do and not do at work? Okay. 
And by implication, you couldn't think that you should know what, what you, you should do and not do in the church? Right. The teachings of the church. You think he's going to hold water before the Lord? Now you're mocking him. It's even worse. Absolutely, they will judge more harshly. The, the, I mean, God shall not be mocked. You can't tell him, well, you know, I didn't care. Well, what do you think the intention is in this case? When somebody says, well, I don't want to learn. Ah, the intention was good. In that, you think this is what it meant by intention. You're judging the intention by the perceived effect of it. You're basically saying his intention was good because I perceive in the gesture something good. Right? Um, Hitler's intention was good. He wanted to revive Germany. Judas's intention was good. No, no, no. You can't depend on your own perception of what is good to impart judgment on intention. You can't say, I perceive that this intention was good, therefore it's okay. But this is not good, therefore he could not have a good intention. Hell is paved with good intention. Do you, do you understand? But we don't, well, that's not required. But let's assume, but it's not, that's not what God requires. Where do you find, where in scripture does it say that unless you are absolutely knowledgeable, explicitly knowledgeable, and you took a paper and you signed it, I'm just exaggerating slightly here, then I'll judge you accordingly. Where does it say that? Nowhere. Nowhere. In fact, in, 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 in the letters of St. Paul, he basically says, do not neglect what you have learned. Do not neglect in other words, neglecting what you have learned is enough not to get you in heaven. Give me your point, straight out. What, what are you trying to... No, no, Let's not go through all these examples. Hone on exactly the point you're trying to make. You're saying what exactly? That God... Okay, in that case, let's take that... Very good. Excellent statement. God, in his mercy, could save this person because his intention was good. Hitler's intention was good. Hitler never said, I want to kill all the Jews because I'm an evil guy. If you read Mein Kampf, his book, he clearly explains it to you that this is a scourge destroying Germany and he cares about the glory of his country and he wants the good for his country. Ah, but that man did something about, against the supernatural law. God explicitly stated, don't touch it. What is more important? God said, this is holy. Do not touch it. Do you see the point? I am not telling you he went to hell. I don't know where he went. I'm not God. Thanks be to God. I'm not God, okay? <laughs> and do I believe in God? No, absolutely I believe in God's mercy. But my point to you is this. The more you understand and appreciate God's justice, the more you are awed by his justice, the more you fear God filially, meaning fear of offending him, the greater your appreciation of His mercy becomes. The less you fear God, the less you understand and appreciate His justice, the less you really understand His holiness, the less you will appreciate His mercy. Because you think He doesn't have to be really too merciful. But the more you understand who He is and who we are, and the more you see His holiness and our sinfulness, and the more you realize the depth between Him and us, and how we have sinned in His presence, 
and how we continue to sin in His presence and how hopeless we are without Him, the more you say, how great is your mercy, O Lord. That's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to tell you, let me focus on God's justice because you know what? I love to be lashed with pain and suffering. I'm trying to say, we live in a world where we put under the rug everything because God is merciful. You know, there is a sect in Iraq that believes God is merciful. They absolutely believe in God's mercy. They pray and extol God's mercy. And they say, because God is merciful, we will worship the devil and do what we want and in the end ask for mercy. But, but my point to you is it's very easy to get lost in a variety of ways when we only extol mercy and drop justice. Conversely, when we only focus on justice and drop mercy. Where did he say that? Okay. But that's, but again, text outside of context is a pretext. You can't just take that text and run with it. Because he also said, wide and easy is the path that lead to perdition. And many take it. Hard and difficult is the path that leads to salvation. And very few find it. And the consensus of all the fathers is that the majority, the vast majority of humanity go to hell. I mean, we, we can't run them from the difficulty. We can't just turn it into something easy for us to deal with. We, we can't. It's right there in front of our eyes. That's the truth. God is merciful, absolutely, but we still have to do our part. That's, and, and it's not just a question of intention as in, well, you know, I intend to, be, to do good, Lord. I really intend to do good. I intend to do good. I'll do it tomorrow. I intend to do good. I have plenty of good intentions. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll just wait. Not going to save us. St. James, faith without work is dead. Not intentions, your work. They're the fruit of your faith. Yeah? Okay. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.